that's what's interesting in my mind to kind of differentiate what is adoption and what is adoption plus trauma and where that shows up differently in the therapy room. So. talk about adoption, using our own experiences as adoptees, as well as stories for the community. We just want to mainstream this conversation and just bring it to light. So we are excited to have yes. you with us. Very well said. I love it. Um, today we are kind of diving into some new stuff, which is really exciting. We've been doing a lot of uh, interviews um, with other adoptees, different situations and stuff like that. And this week, we're actually going to be talking with uh, Krista Nelson. She's from Family Circle Counseling in St. Paul. And um, basically, she is kind of a specialist when it comes to the psychology behind adoption. Um, I found her through MN Adopt, um, their website. Uh, Basically, there is a great tool on their website that has a link to by county in Minnesota to find a therapist that helps you with psychology about adoption. But yeah, as far as talking to Krista, we just have a lot of different questions just kind of based on the conversations we've had. Um, But otherwise, uh, we are really excited to get to know Krista and talk to her about some of the um, psychology behind adoption. So let's get rolling. So welcome, Krista. We are so excited to talk to you today just about like, you know, a lot, a lot different topic than usual. It's not just uh, storytelling or kind of Erica and I conversing about a topic. We are going into the depths of um, adoption and psychology and everything that comes with that. So uh, welcome, Krista. Very, very good to be here. Wonderful to be here. You wanted to know a little bit about my credentials. Yes, We'd love to just hear some some background of like where you studied and where you've worked in the past and all of that. Exactly. Especially in terms of as we're talking mental health. Um, I am a clinical social worker, a licensed independent clinical social worker and a marriage and family therapist in license in the state of Minnesota. I've been practicing um, from since grad school days, uh, since the late 80s. So um, yeah, it's getting on 30 years or more, (laughs) maybe more. Uh, And I when I first um, came out of graduate school, I went to school in the University of Chicago. So I have a Chicago family orientation as well as education and moved here to Minnesota because I I married a man from India who loves Minnesota. (laughs) loves it. He loves the air. He loves the fact that he can walk out and not be surrounded by a million sounds and smells cool. that India is all about. And so when I finished, he said, We're mo- I'm moving back. No, he said, I'm moving back. You can join me. And I chose the, the relationship. So I became a Minnesotan as well. Um, but um, and I, you know, was begrudging for a little while because I am a big city mm-hmm. person. I, I love the interaction of culture and um, all people work walking alongside of each other. Granted, that's not always peaceful, but uh, but Minnesota has grown on me, and I now you know cross country ski and love St. Paul like you, and and I appreciate how we we get a chance to be uh, interacting with each other 
sometimes in a more proximate way because we're a smaller city. And um, yeah, but at any rate, I diverged. I uh, went to graduate school, came back. Um, actually, I'm a graduate of McAllister College. Oh, so I, wow. I let me just let's say I did have a, a Minnesota chapter in terms of my <laughs> my schooling. And then I started working for a group that was uh, creatively trying to think about broadening foster care. Uh, it was trying to think about how could we use the the healing elements of family in a variety of ways. Interestingly, we had uh, a grant from a group of comedians, uh, the Comic Relief, that were trying to form to look at homelessness by placing homeless families with foster families and giving them a fostering experience, much as we would a child from the child welfare system. Um, that lasted for a while. There were complications, but I. That has been a theme, I think, throughout my career is thinking about how family is certainly a, a place of some harm and uh, injury for many, but it also is a place of great healing and belonging and connectivity. And I became along the way an absolute advocate um, of, of attachment, of the concept of what attachment is. And I'll be talking about that. At some point, I joined the Wilder Foundation in actually in 2001. As, as they were starting up a project call, then called the Center for Children with Reactive Attachment Disorder. Mm. Uh, long title. Um, I, I think our learning is never name, put a diagnosis in your the title of the center that's growing. But it was exciting at the time because we really noticed in our residential treatment programs and our foster care programs, even working with children outpatient that um, something really was different in how we work with people with early ruptures in their attachment experiences, that the basic trust that one needs to kind of show up in mental health and do your work was severed or or tampered with. And so we needed to think about how we work differently. And that that whole project was investigating that. There was a research component, did a lot of training, uh, and it became, it kind of morphed into what we then called the Attachment and Trauma Training Center. And that... um, there was a Bush Foundation a grant at the time, and that continues in bits and pieces throughout Wilder to this day. Uh, we really transformed how we work much more. It used to be that everything was thought about behaviorally. There was a consequence and a behavior, and you had to respond and shape behavior. And our kids that we were working with just didn't, they weren't motivated by a reward. They would sometimes do the opposite of uh, that. We found far more we had to work on the relationship and creating a um, a qualitative sensory relationship around that child to be able to work with their their bodies literally to get enough safety mm. so they could learn. So um, I could talk on from there. So that I at the time I was also part of a practice then. Would, that developed into family circle counseling. So my colleagues, there are eight of us in our practice, and we are we work uh, primarily with adopted persons, and they're, whether they're little ones in their families, to I particularly enjoy working with adult adoptees in their therapy process, or <laughs> couples who one is who's, um, adopted and the other. So there's, you know, as you, your, your comment about the lifespan of adoption, I really enjoyed because that is absolutely what we um, see and do and revel in and lifelong process. So. Absolutely. And I do a lot of training um, 
of um, therapists as well as parents. There's a great group in Minnesota called Min Adopt. Mm-hmm. If that might be a different show for you down the line, but really unique. I, well, not maybe unique, but in the country there are few Min Adopts or Adopt statewide support centers that give uh, adoptive families particularly. They have adoption savvy therapists that they vet and resources and funding to kind of think out of the box of how to support adoptive families. So I do a lot of training for them with them. That's awesome. Like what brought you to this career? Was it always something you wanted to do? Was it more just, you know, therapy in Mm -hmm. the beginning adoption? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. I, I don't think, I don't think I would have known that per se adoption would have become as much of a focus when I started as it did become. Uh, you asked if I've had personal experience in adoption, and and yes, I do. Um, my my parents were foster parents before, as as I was entering the family as the first birth child, and so I, I like to think my my first brother, my only brother, was a foster brother. Uh, they they had fostered adolescents in New York State, but um, and so there was always. Yes, that was as kind of hovering in the question of my own family about the the importance of being able to extend and create a place where kids who were unable to be with their family had somewhere to learn what it was to belong or be part of a family, but stay, but be part of a family in the way that not to replace birth family, mm-hmm. right, but to augment and to allow and bridge back to birth family, and and then. I thought about being an adoptive parent myself when I had only one birth child. Uh, that, for reasons I don't want to get into here, that did not happen. But I am a, a proud auntie of a 20-year-old adoptee from China, uh, my my niece, and seeing her journey along the line and how she's answering those get those coming out of the fog questions. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot with her. And and just to maybe to add personally, I, I have a mysterious grandfather who disappeared from my mother's life um, as an adolescent, who was um, himself a Latino. I think he's Cuban origin. It's a bit of a mystery. But that that comment about knowing you have some genetic part of you that's not reflected in your the family that surrounds you is something that I am absolutely acquainted with. Uh, when I, I got the chance to go to Colombia as a senior in college and study there. And there was a part that awoke in me that I didn't know was there. And uh, I, I remain very grateful to that quarter of myself that is from the grandfather and his legacy of whom I will never know. But um, I feel him, I feel him in my body. So to, to mental health, keep going. Yeah. yeah so um, I guess, I, my, my next question, just kind of about abandonment issues, that's obviously a hot topic for us. You know, it's the kind of go-to thing that I think people think about when they think about adoption, when they haven't experienced it themselves, they're like, okay, what do I know about this? Oh, this would be one of them. So I guess just as far as like abandonment goes, um, I guess just like kind of the psychology behind like how your brain especially as an infant, like perceives this and how this affects people later, like as they're growing up, meeting their, uh, you know, adoptive family. And then as they grow up through life, just kind of, if you can talk us kind of through that, that'd be amazing. 
Absolutely. Right. Well, as we, I talked about attachment is a core um, neurobiological uh, phenomena that shapes the development of a person and, and a community, I would argue. But so that, that attachment experience starts at a biological level of the rhythm that occurs between, say, now prenatally of a mother and a child and heartbeat exchange of bodily fluids, as well as what we really know emotional experiences. If a mother is extreme, experiencing extreme stress, her body uh, has her hormonal activity that rushes through it, adrenaline, etc. And that child is experiencing that same level of an escalated heartbeat of hormonal response, of needing to kind of fend off danger within the body. So there's this in-syncness that happens between uh, baby prenatally and mother, that, um, you know, if that is a calming experience, the baby experiences that. And security is this, is this level of where there is stress, there is ability to meet stress and return to a level of, of calm, if you will. And so we have this escalation of stress and calm, stress and calm. But if that baby had was living in an environment prenatally or others where there was a lot of stress, uh, and not return to that level of calm, then we have an, a body that's kind of at a heightened system of, of receptivity of being prepared for high levels of escalation, of stress escalation, stress hormones. So, that, so what we've learned more recently on a neurobiological level helps us understand that feeling you describe, Teresa, around why was I abandoned? If I, if I had this relationship, neurobiologically, that was my felt sense, no words for this, right? No language comes on till we're three or four, but my felt sense of there was some something there and then it's gone. There is an attachment rupture. So attachment is that ability to, again, um, neurobiologically be in sync to regulate. And then that regulation partner is gone. Now it can be replaced and, as in a new caregiver arrives on the scene and is able to kind of keep up that dance of stress activation and stress regulation. But there's a loss experience. And, and so one of the key words in psychology we use is constants and permanency. So permanency is something you learn along the line that even though something is not right in your sight, that it still exists. So babies, you know, throw things off of the, the high chair and it's a fun game. Whoa, where did it go? You know, and they pick it up and they can do it over and over and over again. Their brain is internalizing this concept that things do exist after they're gone. But um, And then permanency is that can I know when somebody is angry or changing states that they're the same person even though they're going through different states of emotions and this is what toddlers and preschoolers are doing throughout their development. So I think with ruptures in that early life experience, I, that, that sense of security somehow in a bodily language, intellectually you know it, but this felt sense that things still exist. And then I've heard from many clients I've worked with, particularly adults who can articulate this, I don't know if I exist or if I have the right to exist. I feel as if in times of transition or loss or stress, I have this free fall feeling like I'm just, I'm disappearing and I don't even know if my body can land. So I, I think we're talking again about a felt neurobiological 
sense of loss that isn't um, hasn't had an opportunity to get organized and um, solidified, not just in your kind of knowledge of your story, but but in your body. So let's say that's so one person gets has that happen when they're young. They live in a very stable environment they're in. That's not necessarily trauma, but it stays in the body as a sense. But let's say that happens and then you are in one situation and then you're moved or that you are living somewhere for a year in an orphanage situation and then you move to another. Uh, when we start to add on these layers of transition and loss of that predictable, reliable caregiver who can reach across and calm that distress, distress of what, you know, having a body that's wet or hungry, basic distress or high distress, like too much in the environment is, is overwhelming, is stressful, not safe. Then, then that becomes to create a whole template of, of not feeling like there is such a thing as safety or security. So we're talking about a whole continuum of that word abandonment. From I have this felt sense that I lost something that was important and I have no words for it, but I feel it, to someone who feels chronically that whenever they are in intimate situations particularly or um, vulnerable or forming that relationship with another, there's this dis-ease that will it last, will it stay? It's, mm-hmm. it, it, it produces a felt sense of stress. Uh, and then, then we have all kinds of behaviors, we humans, to what to do with stress, some healthy, some not healthy. So constancy, permanence, abandonment, the, the, a sense of loss, and a loss of control that you mentioned that in your podcast earlier too. Mm-hmm. If, if this happened to me and I had no sense, no say in the matter, no control, how do I know that I have control, especially in relationships or transitions? Uh, I thought when you were talking about that last podcast, you, you absolutely spoke to the experience I hear over and over again. Mm-hmm. That's the place of emotional vulnerability. Yeah. Wow. I'm already just like mind blown right now. <laughs> well, it, it, yeah. And then we add, we add what trauma is. And trauma is an experience that overwhelms a person's capacity to cope with what they have available to them. Mm-hmm. So an infant trauma is going to be different than an adult trauma based on what you have available to you to cope. Um, usually we, we have traumatic experiences. We can overcome them. And that's where attachment enters in again. If the caregiver can be there and hold a baby and just say, oh, that was horrible. That was so hard. Oh, sweetheart, your, your heart is pounding. Let me hold you. Let's say it's over now. It's over now. Then we have that arc of that stress, and that stress can come back down. And a parent can narrate what just happened, even though the child doesn't understand the language. They hear in the tone of voice the story that is kind of carried on. But if if there isn't anybody there to be able to reliably and predictably repair whatever got too scary, that stays in the body as sensory material uh, that that is, that's what we call kind of flashbacks or free-floating or triggers. They're, they're bits of sensory material that can be activated by current sensory arousal and have nowhere to go. So you you might even have your own life experience. You just said, why am I feeling this? What's coming up for me that makes this feel uncomfortable? I don't even know why. This doesn't make sense. Yeah. 
But perhaps that could be somewhere where there's a loss experience that never got to be integrated, as in, you know, beginning, middle, end, narrated, understood. The sensory experiences are organized by the rest of parts of our brain that are kind of organizing, narrate, store information differently. And then, uh, but if it's still there, it's a vulnerability. It's like a bruise that can be eagerly hurt again when touched. So would you say, um, I guess kind of going off of the next question as well as just kind of something I was thinking of during this, like, would you say as far as while a child is growing up, would there be any different ways that you would suggest like adoptive parents to be able to like comfort their child differently? And going off of that, would you think in what you know, you know, seeing people grow up, like do adoptees, like adult adoptees especially, show different ways of coping or like extra ways or they kind of deal with things differently? Mm-hmm. Is that something that you notice mm-hmm. at all? Wonderful questions. Uh, let me start with adoptive parents because this, this is something we talk about all the time, uh, that there can be an assumption in, in adopting or fostering that children are exactly the chronological, chronological age they are. So let's say you've got a child that's three but the child is still um, having, you know, not going to bed in their bed at night. They're just screaming and crying and just can, acting as if they're a much younger child because they they still haven't, again, internalized that constancy that I was talking about before. I think it's imperative that adoptive parents recognize that their children can be at many different ages psychologically um, and that they have to tend to if there's some young stuff showing up, they have to first give the child's successful experiences of what a baby needed, of what a toddler needed, of what a preschooler needed. So we think developmentally all the time in work with uh, adoption in, in, in mental health practice. And so parents are, are as opposed to kind of just saying, do it because I said so, or you should know better, or I'll give you this treat, or again, those more behavioral ways of shaping children's behavior, if you're, if you had this lifelong prenatal experience on of connection, the somewhere the child kind of gets that sense of, well, yeah, this is my mom or dad talking. I want to make them happy. That feels good. I can, you know, they're not intellectually saying this, but they, they kind of go there and you can shape behavior easier. If you have those ruptures of trust from a young age, I think at some level, the brain's the brain is first going to defend. It's going to say, I need to be the boss of me. I need to make sure that, you know, first I know that I'm okay before I share with somebody else. Um, it's a profoundly important organization of what I call survival brain. And then you can go to collaborative blame, but first you're in survival brain. So the adoptive parents have to understand that. They first have to uh, what we do a lot of coaching families to come alongside a child and kind of just try to guess at what is the emotion underneath what's just happening. Oh, you look scared right now. Your face looks mad, but I think you're scared. And then respond to the child in that way. Eventually you're going to redirect them. You don't want to have kids. You, obviously we give structure consequences. We help kids shape their behaviors, but we have to tend to those early trust wounds and that sense of somebody really can get them by, by coming alongside them in very sensory ways. So we talk a lot about sensory uh, at, 
attachment repair and have kids do exercises that are trust. I mean, you maybe have heard of um, kangaroo holds and um, being able to kind of wrap a child around so they get that physical sense of closeness, even though they're older or uh, things that build build a sense, again, of felt connection, felt security, that some adult is guiding them through versus they have to do it all by themselves. Uh, that is a profound piece. And then as, and then growing older, there's each stage of development or different challenges, right? Um, you have really great questions here about uh, the difference between raising a child of same culture, same race or not as you and um this is this you should obviously this is worth an entire podcast or three about this topic (laughs) but the short answer is to recognize that your child particularly if your child does not look like you and is a brown or black skinned person in america they will experience systemic racism and you have to be aware of that not diminish that as a parent whether you whatever your um or your particularly as a white parent, I would just say, because that hasn't been something perhaps you've had to think about as much uh, and begin to um, create experiences where you're protective of that child and also helping them with skills for living of dealing with lots and lots of microaggressions that they're going to experience or, or more so. So all along those developmental lines of dealing with the recognition that this child is you're raising, it's your child. But you have to also recognize they come, they are, they are, they've come from elsewhere, and uh, we can't ever diminish that. We have to integrate that in. Your family changes when you adopt a family. You are, you are now, yeah. You you have to begin to see yourself in a broader light, and we we help families with that transition quite a lot. Um, I think this is such a complex topic. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm doing it justice. Uh, and then adolescence is another stage of identity and needing to push away and be different than you and reject you and typical things that adolescents need to do to get ready to be their own people. <laughs> but then what if you're not really sure if you ever were um, accepted for just yourself or that security of that attachment was solid. Uh, then there's an anxiety about rebelling and being able to step in and step away and, uh, so I see adolescents going through lots of different um, struggles with their own identity and their own kind of pushback, push bill uh, with their adopted parents through that time. I'm working with a young man right now who's 18, and he it's he's having a really rough time right now. And I think part of his mental health crisis is that he he in his mind his adopted parents never really. Um, never really accepted how he was different than them fundamentally in his personality and his preferences. He always felt like he was supposed to somehow subliminally be like them. And the fact that he wasn't his, his, his whole identity at this point is needing, I just need to then reject you. I'm I'm, and the anger about it all is just like a tornado coming out of these adoptive parents. But the core of it truly is this crisis of who am I? Where do I belong? Will am I good enough? Will I belong to anyone ever? Am I alone in the world? So that's an example of where we work in mental health with adoption issues. So many things. And there's, I know we've touched on this before. Like mental health is so, it's really huge right now. But also, we were talking about is it 
more in people who are adopted. Is there studies on that kind of things like that too? Kind of saying that that Mm. definitely is or or what we feeling normal as teenagers? Mm-hmm. I wish I had the data right in front of me, but there is there has been a number of studies um, from the most recent 2015 to some in the early, late 90s, just looking at the reality that that in terms of say percentages of children in um, emergency hospitalization, psychiatric hospitalization, uh, percentage of higher of adoptees than the general population. And, and why is that? Why is it that we seem to have more consumers of mental health proportionate to the general population who are adopted? Some would say because adopted parents are incredibly savvy customers, and they're, if, the, if there's something presenting, they're going to get mm. professional help, whereas other parents might not necessarily uh, look for a therapist to address an issue. And I think that has legitimacy. But I think these, these issues we've just been talking about of of what we call developmental trauma, you know, pieces of life experience that were not, that child wasn't able to master certain um, critical skills that they needed along the way. And that, that object permanence still is an unmet um, psychological wounding that when you hit adolescence, especially, uh, there can be some behaviors, deep despair and reaching out to the chemicals, reaching out to the, yeah. So what's the most common issue you work through with adoptive parents then? With adoptive parents, um, with kids who have some challenging behaviors, I think it's knowing that they have to approach parenting differently. They can't just assume children will do as they say and and because I'm the parent. They have to come alongside that child in a different way and address and meet some of those developmental wounds that I talked about. Uh, and that takes adjustment. I think there's, I think for adoptive parents, many of them have their own grief and loss that mm-hmm. they, they came from perhaps an infertility and decided maybe they too wouldn't have said adoption was their first choice. The whole conversation about ado- adoption is second choice is a really important one. Second choice for, I'm now in a second family. The adoptive family might say it's a, it's my fallback choice that I came to. That's not true for all adoptive families. Um, and then there's a stigma of why is it that a, the mother isn't raising the child that was born to them? Mm. That seems to be a profound, and we usually make that assumption that that should be some sort of of in, overriding process that would never be ruptured Mm -hmm. and when it is what's wrong who's wrong Mm -hmm. so there's a there's a kind of a shame uh, um, what do i want to say kind of a a shame experience that that is palatable i think maybe not named but feeling shame you talked about that about how love love is acquainted with loss and I, i think that absolutely resonates so that question of why did my birth parent leave me and how do I make sense of that if they love me well enough so much that they gave me up, that doesn't make sense. Or maybe if my, I'm thinking of one girl from Colombia as well who said, yeah, my, my birth mother must have been so unhappy. So if I'm going to be her daughter, I need to be unhappy too. It's disloyal to be happy. 
So kids are working through a lot of those issues. And if a, fa- a parent doesn't understand that, if they take that personally, yeah. you can see where uh, we get this kind of, um, why are you rejecting me? Why are you this way? Why can't I ever good enough for you? And so I think for parents to get to a place, we call that radical acceptance, where uh, step back, take it out of the personal context and understand that this is this child's journey that you're coming alongside. You're making adjustments just as she or he is making adjustments to you. I guess I have a question then kind of about Mm. that then, because Erica just asked like, what are the biggest things you deal with, with, or I guess work through with adopted parents. I was going to ask about like in relation to kids, which I want to touch on, but also like, I guess just kind of loyalty to the fact Mm -hmm. that, or like feeling the need to defend birth mother actions like I would imagine that could be a big thing especially if a parent maybe whether they are or not accepting to like the situation around it I would imagine Mm -hmm. that could be something that would just be incredibly like hurtful for you to have to Right, yeah. right. No, I think that's, like that one of the pieces of work we do, particularly when there's been a clear harmful rupture of, you know, I, I work a lot with international or transnational adoptees, more so than, than domestic, um, who are coming out of the foster care system. And you know, there's many, many parallels, but I'm thinking particularly when uh, working with a like girl from the Congo who's you know saw her mother slowly die, for instance, and that prolonged illness or that lot those 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 ruptures are a very real relationships, um, and then to have to figure out how you blend then into a new family, then um, maybe that's a blatant example of how do I be loyal to that mother who I watched die of her illness then who could not care for me and then people in the community decided no one could care for these this group of siblings so they then the placement in the orphanage and all the stories about that are again um, some of them are made up stories some of them are real about those circumstances so that that really pulls on the loyalty of who do I belong to and why am I not there and why am I the living one I hear that a lot too wow and who did I leave behind and who are my siblings that I know I have? And why am I here? And they're there and they're living uh, in situations of, of, you know, sometimes harm and poverty and violence. And I'm here. So such mixed emotions of, of loss. I've thought of um, that before. Well, I have a brother back in Colombia. And mine wasn't more like I'm doing better than he is. It's just more, why did he stay? Why did, you know, those questions of why him not me I, I know her answer but it was it's just a another thought but I could not imagine not having supportive parents through this like I've already had my you know abandonment issues different I hate change I you know it just makes me so anxious and nervous so without that support I just it blows my mind that people don't have that Yes, the support is critical. Wow. And so when I've seen adoptive parents be able to really understand, mm-hmm. to try to understand, maybe they yeah. can't. That's the point. Maybe they can't ever understand. But they are willing to say, my child is having this experience, and I need to be present and witness her or his experience of grief and sorting this out and the inequity of it. I mean, that's, there, is, there is an inequity of how we ended up 
here with resources where other families are not. I think the kind of geopolitical aspects of adoption are are essential to consider and hard. Mm -hmm. And when kids are making sense of those and asking really good questions, Mm -hmm. we got to have a parent who's not so, well, what do you mean? Don't I give you enough or whatever that, um, you know, why aren't the loyalty? Oh, yes. That, that's a, that's a zinger of, Aren't I supposed to be grateful, oh. whether it's said or not? You know, and I, and I guess we haven't interviewed very many adoptive parents. And, of course, I feel like the ones we would interview, it's they're caring, they're supportive. But I just didn't realize there's that many. If you're going through that process, you think they'd be prepared for all of it. But- See, I feel like now that I've been part of that adoptee support group on Facebook, like I've seen the other side, like it is so insane the things that I read every day and I guess you and I can't like the parents that we have and how similar they are in being like happy-go-lucky living their retiree lives right now like they're so similar and just like loving life and like enjoying things that it's to us just you know 26 and 28 years later it's like I can't even imagine someone not like going through this process and not being so like Die hard, like I'm going to do this. It's going to be the mm-hmm. a huge thing. It's not a learning experience at all. Like I just, I can't imagine somebody taking it that way and not taking it as a huge responsibility. Obviously, which always comes with like learning along the way. I think it's a newer idea that children, children before were meant to be, you know, they were they were going to pick up the family business or the farm. They were the extension of the family. They were, and they were supposed to be like me and follow me. And, and I, and my, as I'm thinking as a parent, my sense of who I am in the world and my well-being is um, gratified by who my children are. So if we, if we're talking about that kind of thinking about who parents and children are generally in a culture, and, and then we're asking parents to shift to say, this child is not who they are, is not the reflection of who you need to be in the world. They are there. Yes, yes. We give children support and values, but but they are their own unique being and their own unique genetic being now. And I'll add that element to it that differs from yours. I think some parents get lost as to kind of how to figure out how they have value or who they are. And when that's in question, when that when you have a child who's struggling and really needs to push back. Uh, because they have their own attachment wounds and do a lot of rejecting, particularly, you know, when there is given care. Some of my clients, are the, the, the adoptive parents are the ones who they embattle the most. Unless you have that support and that knowledge, um, it's it's difficult to imagine. People get very wounded mm-hmm. because this child's supposed to be an extension of themselves, mm-hmm. you see. Yeah. So what? So that yeah. So what is like yeah. the best and hardest part about your job? Um, I probably that's the hard yeah. hard part right there is when families are stuck, yeah. and uh, and a parent just cannot do that adaptation, and they feel it so personally, and they take every disobedient act or what's the way language that people get stuck on. Um, she's so. Um, I could think about this every day. Why am I not popping into my mind right now? But she's no manipulative. There we no. go. Um, that, that sense of um, personal injury that children are doing to them. It, it's hard to 
when I get a parent stuck, that's some of the heartbreak to have them kind of move past that. Uh, but and then when kids are really in hurting ways, right? When they're when there's a repeated suicidality, when there's self harm, when there's degree of living on the edge of their own well being um, that uh, that becomes a, a broader cycle. Um, it takes a larger view to say what bits are we seeing right now that gives us hope to know that change is possible. And and I've done this long enough to like have stories of kids that we gave up on that we thought oh, this kid's going to head to prison for sure. His uh, I got a call just Thursday. Um, I, I got a text at six in the morning. If you're listening out there, this parent, um, because she said, remember that kid we adopted? He was 12, tons of really challenging behaviors. And he ended up in residential treatment programs and group homes. And we kind of said, I don't know if this kid will ever be part of this family. He just needed to reject everything about them. Her text said he is now a father. He is an integrated part of our family. He's working. He is healthy. He's whole. We, you know, healing is possible and just wanted to text me to thank me wow. for a little bit of the work we did a long time ago. So I, I've learned to say that these, these are things we can't ever say uh, we write off. The, the joy is, I feel sometimes I call myself either a choreographer or a midwife. You, you're, you're just, you learn how to kind of call the, be on the floor with folks and coach them through about how to connect, how to, to move past that push-pull behavior into building secure attachment. And it's, uh, there's no better joy than seeing people discover how to be safe in relationship. That's, I love what I do. I, I'm going to do it as long as I, my brain works to remember who I'm looking across at. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, it's an art form. (laughs) I love it. I think everything just about is, which I love. Um, Question about uh, as far as different types of adoptees, um, would you say that you, is there any particular distinction of as far as themes that you see from people that are adopted from like domestic versus international? I imagine there's Mm -hmm. quite a bit with open versus closed adoption, age and things like that. But I guess, Mostly, I guess my question would be, because I don't know that this is a very common thing, uh, just as far as like domestic versus international, if there's themes that you see pop up either way there. Right, 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 right. Well, I think um, if we just set for a minute the difference, and domestic would be, uh, particularly today in the child welfare system we have, there, there are going to be children that, there are some who are adopted right in infancy, but more more, at least in my clinical population, these are children who have early life experiences within their birth family, and there's been child protection involvement, and and um, we have a, some sort of neglect or abuse experience that has been uh, documented and, and investigated, and so we know we're working with trauma. Mm. We know we are working with uh, attachment trauma and and trauma of all levels, physical, sexual abuse, assault. And so the healing process is working with the trauma within a new, uh, new, with a new family and having that foster family, then foster adopt. Now we have an ability to be, start out as foster care, but if, if there's a reason that that child can't go back to their birth family, that family has already said we will adopt. We're, we're trying to limit the amount of moves children have had to make 
a lot of lot of um, kind of moving kids on way too much mm. in the early history of child child placement, and that's still too much. But I think we're a bit better at that. We recognize the power of attachment far more than we used to. So, um, but then you're going to have that this child has a life experience of living with another family, their birth family, and still the call to that. And some have relationship with their adoptive, their birth family and cultivating the boundaries, uh, the interplay between birth and foster adopt families is part of what domestic adoption is all about. Uh, as well. And I could speak on many sides of that. There's, um, a woman I work with who was an adopted herself and had two children young at an age that she couldn't parent and were placed in um, with an adoptive foster home. And they she formed a very good relationship with that foster adoptive parent. Mm. And she sees her daughters uh, for, you know, on quarterly times. Um, they attended her wedding when she got married. Wow. Uh, so there's, you know, openness, I think, changes the whole paradigm. Yeah. And, and so I, I can't say enough about good, well-boundaried openness as utterly addressing some of those shames and wounds that we used to have. But but then we talk about transnational adoptees. Now we have those differences I talked about in terms of race, of economics, of of um, you know coming all those kind of geopolitical differences that are difficult to bridge and and have grief and loss experiences that that sometimes people play down. I mean, my own family, my sister said straight up, she, she wanted to adopt someone she didn't necessarily have to navigate a lifelong relationship with birth family with. She somehow thought, because my niece was from China, that she wouldn't have those ties. How wrong she is, <laughs> and, and she was. Even though my niece still doesn't have any, still will not say she's ready to go to China or do that kind of return home country. Uh, but it's in her. I know it is. Mm. So, um, yeah. So I, and then we talked about the, that could happen domestic or international in terms of racial difference, but that's, you know, you talked about that. Well, that, you know, how do you navigate when you look different than your family? Mm. And, and then, yeah, navigating culture and taking that in like you are doing about Colombia. Okay. So, <laughs> There's probably many ways to answer that question, but, mm-hmm. uh, but that's kind of going on. with that. So you work mostly with adult adoptees, kind of growing relationships as you probably have couples who are getting married, things like that, which is awesome because the resources we found for adult adoptees is so or lack thereof. Yeah. <laughs> even right, even right, not adult right. adoptees, you know, we've, we have touched on this a little bit, but kind of going back to our previous episode of coming out of the fog, what do you suggest or help, you know, with grown adoptees to help develop them kind of come out of that or do they ever? Yeah, great question. I was kind of pulling up my notes of kind of typical things we talk about in in that that self-leadership, I would call it, self-leadership chapter yeah. of life in terms of adolescent, young adult, where you are um, being curious about the many parts of yourself yeah. Of, and the parts that you show on the outside and parts that are inside, parts that are cultural, parts that are gender, parts that are young parts. Uh, so we talk a lot about parts in all of that work uh, and and having people begin to play with play. I say play, not not with all respect of 
with curiosity, enter into taking some time with art, with mask making, with uh, music, with, uh, again, using not just your logic centers, but your sensory centers to explore who am I and what's my story and how I tell my story and who do I tell my story to? So that, that chapter of life is about that, of, of embracing the complexity of who I am, that I'm unique in all the world, but I come from all these different parts. And maybe I began to take in something from my, the country of my birth or the culture of my birth and incorporate that into myself, uh, all different ways that people answer sure. that. And, but then also mending or tending to those losses uh, there's um, a type of therapy that I do called EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. But there's a protocol that's um, designed to particularly work with pre-verbal trauma, where we have people begin to visualize themselves even in utero and uh, through their first five years of life, and kind of looking at that part of what what happened to me, what I understand about my experience. And what would I imagine that any child might need to be able to develop a sense of self and security? And, and that kind of holding those, the contrast of that, be able to kind of make, make amends within themselves about what they got and what they didn't get. And they're integrating that uh, they're, through the way we do EMDR. Uh, so there's, those are all pieces of the work that we might do as a young and that then then you move into as you said a relationship or something that is about um going in and out transitions are difficult so i i typically would see someone who is struggling with why don't i have why am i can i can move from relationship to relationship but i don't seem to be able to land in terms of a, a life partner or children or um some people are preparing to meet their birth family. I worked with an older a domestic adoptee uh, who was searching for her birth mom, and her birth mom didn't want to meet her and her own grief about that, but uh, navigating that. Uh, and it was so all of those life processes of what, who I belong to and why I think come in, or couples counseling of someone who's married and has those those sensitivities again about trust and how that shows up in a couple's relationship. I pulled out of my, my bookshelf a couple of things. And one book I realized I have that I've not read, but was highly recommended to me. So now I got to read it, but it's parenting as adoptees. Oh, oh. So here's the book. Uh, so a book of essays written by adult adoptees about their own parenting experiences. Oh my gosh, how cool. so, yeah. Writers are edited by, Adam Chow and Kevin Os Walmers. Okay, perfect. Anyway, I love it. So there are, and there's, you know, adoption narratives. I was just trying to pull up. I went on Amazon to just see how many have been written, and I was there's a whole group of titles I didn't even know, mm. but more and more people are writing about their own um, adoptive journey and putting that into a narrative there's the tv shows um like the fosters mm -hmm. and this is this is us and mm -hmm. you know right now you know popular tv in terms of serials yeah. more and more of us are recognized who are adopted who are foster they're all part of family form kind of come out a little bit more with the tv shows which is so great yeah yeah definitely what's mm -hmm. coming up for you as i'm talking 
Oh my gosh, so much. <laughs> I'm just, this is just so fascinating. I think the biggest thing for me is, actually we talked about it a little bit before, but change is really hard for me and kind of, I never realized it, but the more I read about it, talk about it, um, I am in a long-term relationship, so like eight years, and you know, trust issue is something that I feel like I've had just because I've had bad relationships, people, friends, all of that, but not even like I don't trust you. It's more like make sure you'll come back home, not because I don't know where you are, but more just I don't want you to leave, you know, that kind of that abandonment part comes into play with this that I didn't even realize was a thing until I started reading other couples who have had both sides of that. And it's really interesting to me because I thought it was more, um, you know, just, I don't know, just how relational expectations. And I think it's a little bit deeper than just that, which is really interesting to me when you brought up counseling that couples do counseling for someone who's adopted Mm -hmm. and someone who's not, I would have never thought that was a thing either. So I, I think that kind of stuck out to me a little bit, but it's hard to say. And Risa, I know with you in relationships, it's been a little bit difficult too, but in a different sense, you're yeah. even just committing to it. I'm just a slow mover. Cause I'm just like, nobody move. It's fine. The way it is. Like I, and yeah. we're kind of the same way with change. Like for instance, I'm moving, but to a new unit in my building mm-hmm. and I haven't slept in like two weeks. Cause I'm just like, ah, Oh God, it's happening. <laughs> this is going on. And it's, Oh, the change, like, even though it's a good yeah, change, yeah. even no matter what, if it's a good change, I'm still freaking out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel mm-hmm. like for me, at least that takes like a, mm-hmm. it takes on physically, like very, very much though, yeah. re- less so with, I mean, yes, the racing thoughts, but a lot of the time I just, my body just is like, Aah! it makes sense though, right? It, if, it, if, if the earliest experiences of security that I can lean back and know I'm ha- caught uh, were, 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 um, didn't happen. And there was a loss experience. And loss felt at that physiological level of anxiety, of fear. Wouldn't it make sense that there's some, like, warning system in your body that mm. says, uh-uh-uh, oh, 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 that new apartment, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen up there. Yeah. It's haunted. <laughs> it could be bad. You know, just that anxiety is always looking forward to that next yeah. thing and saying watch out and and we all have anxiety right but when it but when it has mm-hmm. impact in our lives it could be just something that the first place your brain goes and then you you have you're like oh there's there's my brain that does does this worry thing there's one the way to work around it but it's uh one of our teachers bruce perry talked about it is like a learning as a language if you're not a native speaker that you always kind of have that whisper of anxiety as just your accent i thought that was well said what do you have for us i guess i mean we kind of touched base on most of them if we didn't ask it directly it kind of came up anyway well what would you say to your audience about you know maybe a couple of things i want to just take some of the stigma out of mental health that you know, we think about, you know, you got to go to a therapist or seek mm-hmm. mental health if you're crazy. And I, I hope you're hearing that. Uh, yeah, I definitely want to be very clear on the record. Adoption is not a diagnosis. It's, there's no proclivity that you're going to have mental health issues if you've been adopted. That is not the case. There's just um, 
So there's so many factors, I think, that influence that statistic I was saying about why our folks who are adopted may be showing up, especially as adolescents, more. But it does, it does lead to the terms of rupture, abandonment, and a sensitivity to that. Mm-hmm. So if you know that, mm-hmm. work with it. Give yourself, the, give yourself the time to move slowly. Be a slow mover. Yeah. Uh, be the one who can be clear in your relationships to say, hey, I, I've had early in life, you know, I, had some, I lost. So my, my body can respond to loss in a way that I'm already protecting myself from the pain of that a little bit. And can we talk about that as a couple? Uh, how we're navigating those next steps of commitment to one another. Some people deal with anxiety about connection by, nope, stepping back. Others go, where are you going? Like you said, um, where you, don't leave me now. So those are really common. Yeah, right. That's a very common pattern, right? <laughs> so the more you know your pattern, you're not a freak. It's just your pattern. Yeah. <laughs> That's a pull quote. We're putting that on a mug. You're not a freak. It's just your pattern. That, writing that down right now. I love it so much. Great. All right. That's good. That's good. And if your pattern is driving you crazy and you're stuck, then you go see a therapist who's, you know, a relational consultant or a developmental transitions consultant, I think we were joking around about. And so take it out of, unfortunately, we have to diagnose in, in our current system of healthcare drives us many of us crazy i mean when we have diagnoses that, such mm-hmm. as organic mental illnesses and other things that's fine to diagnose but but sometimes what we're talking about here isn't necessarily something we have to call a mental illness but it's dis-ease dis-ease and we're trying to move through to some resolution of that dis-ease and i think a lot of therapy is about that I like that because it, it's not a mental illness. It's just kind of how you're kind of coping with what you've been put and given. In the cards exactly. Yeah. Right. And then you just want to. Yeah. So how do you deal with the cards? Put them on the table. Look at them. Be honest with them. Mm-hmm. And then say, okay, this is my life. So I've got, I love what you said earlier about the regrets part. So many mm-hmm. people are stuck in the regrets. Mm-hmm. So how do I say, this is the life I have now. These are the cards I have. How am I going to play them going forward? And who am I going to do them with? Because yes. adoption is about, it's not just I'm not an individual, but I'm an individual who wants to be connected, belong with others. So there's three ingredients of secure attachment. Somebody, a teacher, just laid it out for me straight up. I said, oh, I like that. That, that people, um, that you are in relationship with people who are, for the most part, not 100%, but good enough, are predictable, do what they say, reliable. And the third is that they can do repair, which means you're not always there for everybody all the time. Oh, you're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to have fights. You're going to have disagreements. But how do you come back and not have belonging be ruptured just because you've had this tension or this stress? So how do you do repair well? That's what allows the body our nervous systems to settle and say, we got, you know, someone's got me. Wow. (laughs) I'm just every, I don't even know. I'm so blown away by you right now. (laughs) Well, my, my parting words, it's so absolutely joyful to spend time with the two of you in terms of what you're creating and exploring 
and doing that outside of the context of having to be in mental health or in therapy is just it's just delightful i imagine for me and all my colleagues who work in adoption and mental health we would echo that comment and so keep providing people with something like this that they can say you know i'm going to send this to my niece and i'm going to say you know leanne you got to check this out because this is a part of yourself you haven't let yourself explore but it's right there yeah. you can talk to yeah. us or anything we're always yeah. here we've been through yeah. it all well not yeah. all but we've been through a lot <laughs> Yeah, I would love to hear about you ever wanting to go to Colombia and Bogota and um, all of that, um, putting together your own cultural selves mm-hmm. uh, with, with who you are as St. Paul, yes. Minnesotans at the same time. I would love mm-hmm. that. Well, we will yes. for sure be in touch more yes. than just this. So hopefully, even if there's other coworkers who want to talk to us, do an interview with us, any of that, that yeah. too, or a pamphlet. Absolutely. Yes. I love your idea of interviewing mm-hmm. an adoptive parent who has been working with a kiddo who's who has had had a kind of rough ride in and out, and how they how they stay through it. And mm-hmm. um, someone like the parent who yeah. emailed me the other day, uh, um, yeah, there, that would definitely be something I'd suggest. But whatever you do is great. So keep it coming. And do let me know how we can be of uh, any support and help to you. And MinAdopt can't say mm-hmm. enough about them as being a really positive voice for change and healing and just uh, you know, seeing you know, Minnesota's the state where we have, I, I don't know the statistics, but it seems like we have so many more adopted people uh, proportionate to our population in other places. And that's, that's what makes something yeah. cool about Minnesota. So we, claim that as our state identity yeah absolutely well thank you so much krista we will be in touch um yeah this was a really eye-opening conversation that we've been dying to have with someone so this has been really great so thank you again so much all right you too wonderful to meet you erica risa my great pleasure all right bye-bye Before we recap this interview, we want to let all of our listeners know about some updates and exciting things we want to share with our audience. As you heard in our last episode, you can now find our full new website at ColumbianInfluence.com. Be sure to spell that C-O-L-O-M-B-I-A-N Influence.com. In addition to that exciting news, please be sure to check out our social media pages to see us hype local business owners, side gigs, and artists that we support. Funding local businesses is more important than ever during 2020, and we hope that sharing these businesses encourages you to do your holiday shopping locally to boost your community's economy. If you want to specifically fund our project and mission and want more content from Colombian Influence, go to colombianinfluence.com and scroll to the bottom of the homepage to donate a one-time or recurring amount to Colombian Influence. Thank you for supporting us and the entire adopted community. Happy holidays! Okay, I'm okay. It's still recording. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Mind is blown. <laughs> you know what I didn't realize is how much the parent affects all of that as well 
Like, I cannot, I'm stuck on that and how she has so many issues or things she has to overcome with the parents. Like, I just, you think you would be all prepared, all, you cannot be prepared for everything. No, I think I, that's a really good point too, because like, it is something that the way that they help shape your reactions when you're a kid, like when she was talking about that, but also the way that you do have to, they're, they're supposed to be there to try and work, you know, work their asses off basically to, un- to try to understand. Cause that's as much as they can do. Yeah. And I would imagine the work gets lost or swept under the rug somewhere in the process of like the nitty gritty with adopting, like, for us, at least, especially like the travel, the costs, mm-hmm. the signing of a billion papers, you know, like I imagine it gets lost. But I think that would that's easily something that should be prioritized, obviously, so that there's not problems down the line. And she's been doing this for so long. But at the same time, I was talking to my mom and I was like, did you even know there was therapy just for adopted people? She's like, no, I had no idea. And so for it to be continually talked about. So parents do have that resource. Like you're, they're not alone either. I, I could only imagine they have a lot of questions, concerns as much as we do. I mean, everyone is kind of going in this blindfolded, trying to find the right path, the right way to work through anything they're going through. And it's just, it's awesome that there's those type of resources. But at the same time, I will say like, thank God we're not really going in blind anymore. Like, yeah. Mental health has changed so much over the years so that there is acceptance for, first of all, just for prevention. Mm-hmm. Like I've said a billion times, I will say this every day till the day I die. Everyone needs therapy. You shouldn't go when you're in a crisis situation. Just you need to learn the tools first. I think that would have, I mean, I'm sure if my parents were adopting me now in 2020, things would be a lot different as far as my growing up because mental health isn't stigmatized the same way at all. But it still is just the fact that it's just that stigma needs to be like people need to work on themselves before they were to do something like this. And I think, I don't know what the, what's mandated before or mandatory before adoption, but I can't imagine there's much of like one-on-one therapy required or something like that. And not even, not even mental health. I just letting just the community for parents too, as how we have a community for adoptees. I think that's really important to have parents have that support too, because being a parent in general, I think is very difficult and being a parent of an adoptee or someone who has so deep trauma is a whole new game. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot and I feel really good about it. And I want to speak to her again. I feel like we couldn't even get into like, we barely touched the surface. Yeah. And I would say, great to do a second one with her maybe even more on our own specific questions oh for sure I think something like that would be really cool um and I guess with that um one thing I wanted to just end on that I was thinking about at the very end of our interview with Krista she had said something about like with her niece and stuff and like taking it with what you want your life to be and taking the cards you were dealt and I just remember her writing in the notes prior to us starting this, just saying something about like, what has this podcast done for you? Mm -hmm. And I just, I just was thinking, and I was like thinking about that just while she was talking at the very end. I was like, you know, 
I feel like this podcast has allowed me to turn it around and have it be a really cool, bragworthy thing about my life that I get to talk about that I'm showing in a different way. So it's like, it's like, it's a different type of way where I can introduce like myself. Like when people ask, um, where are you from and what do you do for a living? They're often in the same conversation. Mm-hmm. Now, instead of being like, oh, well, I'm from Northfield, but I'm from, from, cause like, I don't think adoptees know where they're supposed to say where they're from. But it's, like, it's like Americans. We, a lot of Americans are just kind of like, well, I'm from Norway and then everywhere in Scandinavia. That's like what people say they're from, but they're not, they're born here. So it doesn't count. Tangent. Sorry. (laughs) I'm just saying, but like for us, it's like, we have that really weird way of getting to that conversation. Now it gets to be part of what I do and what I'm trying to make of myself. And I think that's like why this is so important to me. And I think why just this conversation was so uplifting also is just the fact that this is what I've done with my cards. Mm-hmm. And this is what you and I, and like just the fact that she was talking about how like our family is, you know, and people in our lives are so important to us. I feel like we've basically, we've like, I don't know, I guess won the lottery with like this particular project. The fact that we have a meaningful, <laughs> memorable person in our life, plus being able to do this project. Mm-hmm. And we get to brag about it all the time because we're really cool people. <laughs> So with that being said, follow us on all social medias. Just stay up with us. Beautifully said. A bit better. We are maybe are going to do a new Q and A on Instagram live. Just go with it. <laughs> She's like breaking this news to me while we're on on our like Facetime thing, and I'm like, yeah. I would just have- fun to just again connect. We have a lot of new listeners, new followers. Yes. So many new listeners that I love it. It would be fun just to kind of give us, um, give you a little bit of who we are again and just reintroduce ourselves. We're just so excited to be here with you. Thank you for being on this journey with us, allowing us to really just be in an environment where we can be ourselves and make, again, a hard topic positive and uplifting. And you are not alone. No matter who you are, whatever stage you're in, Mm-hmm. we are there with you even just as a friend as a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well and sometimes we say funnies and they're funny so mm-hmm. we're also here occasionally for comedic relief yeah. <laughs> all right well as always thank you for joining Colombian influence until next time later bye <laughs> <laughs>